The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from John eleven twenty one through 35. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Come and see. Jesus wept. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome to the first uh, Sunday of Holy Week. And uh, I'll just say that it's usually... Uh, a no-no for preachers to mention Easter or the resurrection before Easter Sunday uh, during Holy Week. The, the design is to, to let God's people sit in the grief and the disorientation of Jesus' journey to the cross and Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Um, but I'm going to break the rules uh, today because of the week that uh, our city has uh, been through collectively and uh, that has personally affected many people in our community. Um, the 8.30 service uh, today, there was not an empty seat in the room, and many of those seats were filled uh, with lamenting families, with, um, with parents who are still making sense of the fact that their children were there, experiencing the trauma of what happened uh, last Sunday at the Covenant School. Uh, many of you... Uh, as is also the case uh, for those in the earlier service, our, our family members are close friends with affected parties. Uh, many of you are showing up to tend to others' uh, grief and trauma. And, uh, and so we thought it would be good to just change the plans and to start a new plan in terms of what we would look at this morning 
uh, as recently as this Thursday. And so, uh, so we'll do that uh, with John chapter 11. And uh, there is so much here uh, to help uh, the people of Jesus in times such as these. And uh, it has been a week of weeping and uh, Christ prez. There's a lot of overlap with the Covenant School and Covenant Church community. Uh, we'll be hosting three of the six victims' funerals uh, here in this room. The first one was yesterday uh, as, uh, as uh, friends and family of Cindy Peak, uh, who was a substitute teacher uh, on Monday, uh, came to uh, say their last goodbyes to her. And one of the things that Todd, Todd Teller, Pastor Todd Teller, prayed uh, in the time with the family before uh, coming into the sanctuary was that Cindy is better off than she's ever been uh, because she's with Jesus. She's better off than she's ever been, but we are not. She's better off, but we are not. There's this way that Scripture limits itself in that it doesn't give us satisfying answers to the why question. Why, why did this happen? Why these little ones? Why these educators? Why this community? Instead, what the Scriptures do is they give us, they give us a who. They give us companions that Hebrews the book of Hebrews refers to as a great cloud of witnesses who hover over us invisibly, but, but, but in a very real way, hover over us uh, to support us in our own grief and in our own trials. Every author of Scripture was a sufferer. Many authors of Scripture became martyrs for their faith, and especially <coughs> the writers of the Psalms provide us with companions in our grief when we feel the disorientation of hurt, anger, sadness, being afraid. And then, of course, the other who that the Scriptures provide us with is the subject of the Scriptures, which is Jesus Christ who died, who was buried, who rose from the dead, and who will come again. Now, earlier in this chapter, this, this part of the Scripture wasn't read today, but it's part of the passage. Earlier in this chapter, what we call death, Jesus refers to as sleep. Just hold on to that for a second. What we refer to as death, Jesus refers to as sleep. In his mind's eye, death is a very temporary thing. Death itself has a shelf life. Death itself is going to be put to death. And his subtle use of that word sleep is all we need to realize that and to hang on to hope. What Jesus is communicating is that death does feel final to us, but those feelings of finality, those though they may be real, those feelings ultimately are not true. It's not final. Death is our final enemy, but it is not our final chapter. And this Lazarus account encourages us with that. So my predecessor, Wilson Benton, who faithfully served Christ Pres for five years as its interim senior pastor, 
I remember back in our St. Louis days, uh, I was there when he preached the funeral of a child who had died from sudden infant death syndrome. And he said something about that child who was with Christ at the time and still is that can be said also of every life lost uh, in this tragedy at Covenant School last week. He said of the child, the child knows more now about Jesus and about Scripture and about rich doctrine and theology and all the rest than the Apostle Paul did when he was writing the book of the Romans. This is undeniably true, that the moment a covenant child or believing soul enters the presence of Jesus, what cannot be complete here becomes complete there. And so before I continue, I'd like to just offer a prayer to the Lord to set our hearts for the things that John 11 has to teach us. Lord, we know that precious in your sight are the tears of your people because you promised that. We know that death, though horrible and though our last enemy, is not our last chapter. And we know that what those who are now in your presence have in full can be ours even now in part. And so, Lord, we ask for that now as you meet us through your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> one, of the th- one of the things about this text that should stir our affections for Jesus Christ and also bolster our trust in him is the way that he honors the dignity of each individual according to their uniqueness. Both Mary and Martha, the sister of Lazarus, the sisters of Lazarus who, uh, who had died, ask him the same question and, and make to him the same statement. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. But he, he engages with each of them according to who they are. Martha is this no-nonsense, um, just give it to me straight kind of person. And that's, that's how she is as well. And so she rushes to Jesus as soon as he shows up and says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Jesus, responding to this no-nonsense woman, responds in a no-nonsense sort of way. Your brother will rise again. And she says, "Well, well, I know this, Lord, I know this. And he says, I am. I am the resurrection, the resurrection, and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. No nonsense. No beating around the bush. And then Mary, who has kept her distance, she's a contemplative soul, she's sad, she's hurting, She hears, like her sister does, that Jesus has arrived four days late, four days after the funeral. And Martha has to go get her and retrieve her and bring her into the presence of Jesus, which she does. 
And she asked Jesus the same question. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. That's really more of a statement than a question. (coughs) And Jesus didn't say anything to her like he did to Martha. Instead, it says that Jesus wept. So he gives Martha the straight talk that, that, that is according to who she is. And, and he gives to Mary the empathy and the sense of presence and tenderness that, that her heart responds to. That's who he is. And there are three gifts that he, that he offers to each individual in a unique way, according to who you are, in the same way that he offers all of it to us collectively who believe in Christ. The gift of his tears, the gift of his anger, and the gift of his hope. And so let's, let's walk through each of those. The gift of his tears. In verse 19, it says that many of the Jews, because this is what you do when people in your community experience this kind of loss. You gather. You bear one another's burdens. You surround those who are experiencing grief and you, as much as you can, help absorb their grief and you help uphold them and uplift them in their grief. And so it says many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them. They're still there. It's four days later. They're still there. They show up. they, they, They cancel all their plans. They show up. And they sit with the sisters in their grief. But what about Jesus? Again, both both sisters say, Lord, if you had been here, because they know him to be a miracle worker, they know him to be the resurrection and the life. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. And Martha is quick to point out, it has been four days. Four days. You can probably relate. It's one thing to experience excruciating pain. It's another to experience that kind of pain and feel as if God is nowhere to be found in the midst of it. It's disorienting. It's frightening. So Elie Wiesel is a Nobel laureate and uh, also a Holocaust survivor. He experienced the horrors of the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz as a young boy. He was about the age of the children that were up here with palm branches this morning when he was detained at Auschwitz. He wrote this book called Night, N-I-G-H-T, Night for Darkness. And in that book, he relays one particular experience where the Nazi guards brought one of his childhood friends, again, the age of the kids that you just witnessed up on stage, one of his friends about that age out into the middle of the public square and brutally killed that boy, his friend, in front of everybody for sport. And this is Wiesel's reflection on that moment. I thought to myself, God is dead. The God of love, of gentleness and consolation. My eyes had opened and I was alone, terribly alone in a world without God, without love or mercy. 
As men assembled for prayer, I felt like an observer, a stranger. Have you ever felt what feels like the absence of God? How do we explain Jesus' delay? Four days. His tears provide a hint that he's not uncaring, but he is, being God, intentional in ways that we may never understand, especially on this side of things. In verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard Lazarus was ill, because he loved them all, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So there's this anecdote about St. Teresa of Avila where she, she talks about a conversation that, that she says to have had with the Lord. And it was during an excruciating season of her life. She was going through unimaginable pain. And she says to the Lord, why all this suffering? Why all this senseless pain? And, and, and she says, the story goes, the Lord responded to me, this is how I treat my friends. And then she responded back, well, it's no wonder, Lord, why you have so few friends. Verses 14 and 15, this is what he says to his disciples. Lazarus has died, and I am glad. Lazarus has died. Lazarus, the one I love, has died, and I am glad for your sakes. I'm not glad that he died. I'm not glad about death at all. I'm glad for your sakes. There's some development that has to happen in your undeveloped hearts to prepare you for days that will come soon where 11 out of the 12 of you will die an unjust, violent death because of me. There's development that needs to happen in your hearts concerning death. It's a lot like pregnancy. Just like that, that fragile infant needs nine months to develop in order to be able to live. Your fragile hearts need a few days of deep, confusing, disorienting grief in order to develop to a place where you're ready for the next level thing that I'm going to call you into for my sake. This is one of the most upsetting parts of Christian discipleship and of following Jesus is is when he puts us in a place where we have to wait in silence and then we have to wait some more and then we have to wait some more and then we have to wait some more and heaven seems silent. God seems absent He never seems to be interested in breaking the silence. But these hurts that we hold, the the, the sadness that we hold, the anger, the fear that we hold during the waiting, he refuses to rush it because those emotions are so sacred. 
that they deserve not to be rushed. They are image of God reflections. They're part of how we understand what it feels like to be Him. Human emotions like hurt, sadness, anger, and fear over things like this are an act of protest. That things are not the way they're meant to be. We're made for Eden. We're made for the new heaven and the new earth. And we live in between both of them. And things are off. They're not the way they're meant to be. And so the most spiritual people, the most God-like people, are not the ones who stuff their emotions and who feel less hurt, anger, sadness, and fear. But it's those who feel these things more and more deeply when things are off. People who feel tend also to be the ones who act and who show up and who provide comfort and reminders of the hope that's on the other side. You know, this whole, you know, adage, stop crying like a baby. We understand, right, that that is so much more an American sentiment than it is a Christian sentiment. That is so much more John Wayne than it is Jesus Christ. You know, wasn't it Jesus who said it's the babies who are going to show you what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God? Let the little children come to me, but don't just let them come to me, imitate them. For unless you learn to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never know what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Cry like a baby. That's part of how you grow up. Is you stop stuffing down how I have made you to respond when things aren't right. Jeremiah lived with such distress that that the theologians refer to him as the weeping prophet. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations. It's in the Bible, inspired by God. Ecclesiastes reminds us there is a time to weep, just as there is a time for rejoicing. The Psalms invite us to cry out of the depths of our hearts and our souls. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible and one of the most impactful. When Nicholas Walterstorff in his, his book Lament for a Son you know, talks about and, and, and expresses his own grief over the loss of his son who was in his 20s and died from a rock climbing accident. He says this, We strain to hear God in our sorrows, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch the sight of God himself scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. And through the tears of God, we see the splendor of God. The gift of Jesus is tears. But then he gives us the gift of his anger. Sometimes the only thing that will calm our spirits when we're under distress is if somebody else gets mad at whatever it is or at whoever it is that's causing our distress. You know how they talk about how misery loves company. Part of that company that misery loves especially if, if you are, are being assaulted by a wrong, a wrongdoing like death, is for somebody to get angry about it. It helps you to feel less alone when somebody stands between you 
And whatever it is that is bringing this pain about in your life and says you have to go through me in order to get to him or to her. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's standing between death and those who suffer the consequences of death. The modern translations in English come across as very soft relative to what the original language means. (coughs) Verse 33 is often translated, when Jesus saw everyone weeping, he was greatly troubled. But the Greek actually means he was quaking with rage. Verse 38 is often translated that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit, but the, the Greek actually means that he was roaring and snorting like an angry bull about to go on the attack to stampede its prey. The Son of God is angry. He's not the least bit angry at Mary and Martha's bewilderment or at their interrogation even. He's not the least bit angry. They're just imitating the Psalms. That's all they're doing is praying the prayers, the kinds of prayers that, that God taught us to pray in the Psalms. He's angry at death. Death is a vandal. Death is an enemy of shalom, of of peace, of flourishing. Back in my 20s, a friend told me he was feeling very sad because his mother had died and just anxiously wanting to fill the the silent air with, with words. I said, well, oh, that's, I'm, I'm so sorry. I guess, you know, death is just a, a sad part of life. And he said, no, it isn't. He said, it, it is sad, but it's not part of life. It's the opposite of life. It's, it's the enemy of life. I'm like, oh, you're right. Ephesians 4, here's another one where the, the, the English translations just don't seem to, to want to say w- what it says. A lot of times our English translations will say, in your anger, do not sin. But the literal translation of this and also the psalm that Ephesians 4 quotes is be angry. It's a command. It's an imperative. Be angry about some stuff and sin not. In other words, there's such thing as unrighteous anger which is a a destructive energy that that, that when used poorly, it will destroy the good. That's what unrighteous anger does, is it seeks to destroy that which is good. But righteous anger, the anger that comes from Jesus, seeks to destroy that which is evil. And death is evil. And so the Lion of Judah, part of why he has those big fangs is that one day he's going to sink them into the jugular veins of death and put death to death and swallow it up in victory. That's why the Apostle Paul, while he's facing death, can say, where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? You know, when we know Jesus in this way, Romans 8 starts to make more sense to us. (coughs) Where the Apostle Paul says, we face death all day long. And we are more than conquerors through the one who loved us. I don't know if Nashville has ever needed a word like that more than Nashville needs a word like that now. The gift of his anger and then finally the gift of his hope. 
Oftentimes, hope is delivered to us from God through community. And the crowd asks the question that Mary and Martha are feeling in their hearts and gives Jesus an opportunity openly to answer the question. Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So there are two words to think about here. Will and can. Will he stop this if he's all-powerful? Will he stop this? And if the answer is no, then he's cruel. Can he stop this? And if the answer is no, then he's weak. And a cruel God and a weak God, either or, leads to despair. Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote this very famous book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it was, it was a result of, of his own grief and processing of, of losing his own son to leukemia, which is an awful disease. And in the book, Kushner sort of you know, outlines his thought and says, you know, I've heard all my life that God is all-powerful and all-loving, but this experience of loss and grief has shown me that God has to be one or the other, and we have to choose which one. It can't be both, and I can't bear the thought that God is all-powerful but not loving. And so I have to go with love, which means that he's not all-powerful, which means that he couldn't have stopped this. There's a way in which God's hands must be tied. But this presses us to revisit verses 14 and 15. Lazarus, have, Lazarus has died, and I am glad for your sake. There's a tension in there. There's love, there's power, but there's no explanation, which is an invitation to trust, which is one of the hardest things in the world. You know, Tim Keller says the hardest thing to give is in concerning the things of God. Surrender to what we don't know. Surrender to his wisdom that's higher than ours. And then verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Is the question he answers. Or asks, and, 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 and that's the question he's asking us. That's the question he's asking everyone all the time. Do you believe this? And he's not fishing for information. He's not curious about what Martha does or doesn't believe. He knows what Martha believes, and he's calling her back to what he knows she believes, who she is, what she knows. This is the most important question you could ever be asked. Do you believe? And if your answer is no, then I'm I'm sorry to say I have no hope to offer you on a week like this. None. All that's there is despair. All that's there is life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. As Macbeth bewailed after the loss of Lady Macbeth. There is no comparison, friends. We had, a, we had a Christian funeral yesterday. We're going to have a Christian funeral this afternoon in the sanctuary. We'll have another Christian funeral later this week. 
And then there are other Christian funerals happening all over town at different places. And I've done funerals for those who believe, and I've done funerals for, for those who didn't. And I'm here to tell you there is absolutely no comparison between a Christian funeral and a funeral for somebody who doesn't believe. The former, you always leave with a ring of hope to accompany you in your sadness, with a ring of confidence that that all sad things, to quote Tolkien, do become untrue in Christ, but to leave a funeral where the deceased did not know Christ It's a gutting feeling. And the only thing that a preacher can say with integrity, you can't say, oh, they're in a better place. You can't do that with integrity. That's a a meaningless platitude based on nothing but false hope. The only thing you can say is, "If, if the deceased were still here with us today, this is what they would want to say to you. And I base that on Luke chapter 16, where pictured is a man who did not believe in this lifetime, and he died, and and he's suffering eternal torment, and he's crying out toward heaven, and he's saying, please, please, somebody send a message to my relatives who haven't died yet to let them know. And then the voice comes from heaven. Some people won't even believe if somebody rises from the dead. Do you believe is a question for right now. If this week has taught us anything, it's that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not even guaranteed the next five minutes. Today. Today. Jesus won't rush your grief, but he does want to rush your salvation. Today is the day. But if the answer is yes, it changes everything. The bruise on your heart, you have the promise that the bruise on your heart is temporary. The bruise on your heart will perish. Your grief will perish. But your joy will live forever. And in some mysterious way, your joy will will be related and correlated to the grief that you endure now, temporarily. And when our daughter, when our, when our oldest daughter was three years old, one day we lost her in a shopping mall. We turned the other direction for like a nanosecond. She was gone. And <coughs> we panicked, and we started looking for her, and one minute passed by. Still no sign of her. Three minutes passed by. We're, 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 we're terrified Still no sign of her. Five minutes passed by. Enough time passed that we called the authorities. And as the authorities arrive, she, she reemerges out from underneath a clothing rack. And that was just a little glimpse of eternal hope for me. Because when she emerged, right? Remember, she was three. When a kid is three... You've had enough sleepless nights. You've had enough colicky moments. You've had enough um, evidence that, that we're all born sinful. You've had enough. They've given you enough not to like them all the time. But I tell you, in that moment when she reemerged, 
our hearts felt more warm toward her than they did the moment of her birth because we thought we had lost her and we got her back. And I know it breaks down because we're talking this week about parents who don't have that experience. Their their kid's not going to come back underneath a clothing rack. The next thing for these parents and these family members, for the courageous adults who protected kids and lost their lives in the process, the next thing for them is a funeral. The next thing for them is, is a room like this on a sunny day after a dark Monday. And yet, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And that includes their covenant children. This recovery that we experienced will be the experience of friends and family and loved ones to the uttermost. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what the warmth and joy and deep, deep pleasure and relief that reunion is going to be. You know, C.S. Lewis says, you know, that, that, that heaven is going to work backwards and turn our agony into a glory. And just like waking from a nightmare, we, we, will, we will hold those lost loved ones even closer because we thought we lost them. And then we will discover that they never stopped being ours. The, he- the happily ever after that every mourner's heart wishes were true is. I love the lyric from Sandra McCracken, her song Fool's Gold, where she says, This is not okay. And so I know this is not the end. If it is not okay, then it is not the end. Death is our final enemy, but it's not our final chapter. The feelings of finality are real, but they are not true. Thanks be to God.